0: Well, let's pray. Father, I pray, come to us Lord, please help us, please speak to us. I pray it in Christ's name, Amen. Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. I've actually, at home, I've started a series in Hebrews. And so I've been reading the whole book quite a bit. And I've been reading chapter 1, chapter 2. Um, something occurred to me. And, and I want to I want to show you what it is that occurred in in my sermon this morning. But for starters, Hebrews chapter two, verse one. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But I I, I think I I looked at many of these verses, and I th- I think the NAS is very similar in most of them. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1, and and I want you to follow with me, I want want you to answer some questions here, they're very simple. Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. What is the it at the end of this verse? Because your NAS has that two letter word as well, it, what's the it? What we've heard. That's right. That's what we don't want to drift away from. The it that we don't want to drift away from, that's what we've heard. But what what have we heard? What is the writer of Hebrews assuming has been heard? And I, I think we can see what he's referring to by reading what follows after this. Hebrews two. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution or payment. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So there you have it, if we neglect such a great salvation. So what we've heard is the message of a great salvation, but keep reading. It, this great salvation, this message, the what we've heard, it was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. It was declared by the Lord and by His apostles. This is clearly The it. This is what we heard. That which was declared by them. That's what we don't want to drift away from. This is obviously the message of salvation. This is the message of a great salvation. This is the gospel message. This is what we've heard. This is what Jesus went about Preaching and proclaiming. he teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. That's what Matthew tells us. So that's what we've heard. That's what the it is. It's a message of a tremendous salvation. A great salvation. So, you all see that when this writer says in verse 1... Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. That's what it is. It's a message of a very great salvation. Now look, I know this is plain and this is really simple. You can all see this. It's rather obvious, right? Everybody sees that. It's not complex. But here's the thing. I began to imagine, and you imagine with me, imagine, you know, I've read about different times in history. It seems like I've read where, you know, behind the iron curtain, various times, places in history, especially, you know, under under the Catholic domination of the Dark Ages, it was not unheard of sometimes for entire churches to have one Bible. You heard of those times? They might have one Bible, and I heard, I've heard i heard where they would actually section the Bible up. And they would hand out different pages. And people would take the pages. And it was very valued. You had to be very responsible. They didn't just hand those out to anybody. But let's imagine this. Let's imagine your church here had one Bible. And you handed out chapter 1, to Mason and he lost it. His dog's ate it. But imagine imagine with me. Truly, we did not have Hebrews 1. It was missing. And so I come to you today and I say open up to Hebrews And I have your church Bible up here, and it's the only one, you don't have them in your lap. There have been times like this, when the word of God was so precious, and not everybody had it. And so we imagine, Hebrews 1 is gone, and so we're going to study Hebrews, but we have to start at chapter 2. Well, look what happens. What would we expect? Let's, say, let's imagine with me, you've never seen Hebrews chapter 1, we don't know what's in it, but we come and we start reading, therefore, how does, how does the NAS start right there? For this reason. For this reason. Well, I mean, whether you're saying that, for this reason, or therefore, you realize, Something has happened in chapter 1 that the the writer is building on in chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to this, this great salvation that we've heard about, lest we drift away from it. I mean, what would we expect if we heard that? Therefore, we must not drift from this. What we have heard, this great salvation, therefore, or for this reason, we must not drift from it. What would you expect to have heard in chapter one? I would exp- I mean, you don't say, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to this great salvation unless you've just argued that this salvation is what? Really great. That's, that's what we would expect to have had happen there. But if we didn't have chapter one of Hebrews, then what we'd have to think is this: OK. Obviously, the writer just argued that this salvation was great. And so we could imagine, well, what would he have said? Yeah. I mean, all the great things about our salvation. You think about it. I mean, what? look, Papa, when you were saved, what was one of the great things about salvation that just jumped out at you? Joy. joy. The joy of salvation. Brethren, we come into the scriptures and we find that we are headed towards a place where there is joy and there is pleasure in the presence of God forevermore. There is a joy. There is a a joy because our our sins are forgiven, not in part, but the whole. They're nailed to the cross. We bear them no more. Total, full atonement can it be? I mean, you come face to face with this, and not only this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. I mean, it would be one thing if he saved us and he just left us alone. But beyond that, he brings us into his family. He we are the bride of Christ. We are the children of God. I mean, these things are they're mind-boggling. Just to behold these things. And then you begin to look and you see this this wasn't just a knee jerk reaction of the Lord. He chose me before the foundations of the world. If I have any love for him, it 's because He first loved us. You begin to look at the eternality you go you go there into Romans chapter eight and and verses twenty nine and thirty and you begin to see whoa, my salvation there is from everlasting to everlasting, this thing has been in the mind of God. I mean, it just begins to blow you away. And you behold all these things about our salvation. This salvation is great. It is glorious. You begin to look at it. And, in the, you know, it, it was only after I was saved that I really began to realize it's not just the guilt. It's not just that He takes away... That my criminal record, sin, sin no longer is having this dominion. I begin to realize my life is transformed. My desires are changed. This is a great salvation. It reaches further than just our guilt, it goes right to the power and to the dominion of sin and ultimately eradicated altogether. And I'm going to behold, I mean, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you realize what this salvation has brought to us? We will be able to behold God. You get into those last, those last chapters of Revelation and you begin to see something. Think about that. This salvation is ultimately going to consummate in seeing Christ face to face, beholding God, beholding the Lamb, no longer need for the Son, every tear wiped away. I mean, there is such glories in this thing. And so, if we were imagining, okay, this great salvation, well, certainly the writer of Hebrews must have been hitting on all these things in the first chapter. I mean, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we might contemplate how this salvation, it saves the chief of sinners. And it reaches out and and it lays hold on people of of all manner of wickedness. And it's, oh, how free... Absolutely of grace. I don't have to earn it. I don't have to buy this thing. And then you begin to look and you realize the great, the great cost of our salvation. And we can look at the cross and we can hear those groans that came from there and see Christ in the garden. And what must the salvation be that it actually wrung blood from the Son of God Himself? And. You look at the glories of, the, of justification. Absolutely free, the ungodly, declared righteous. A right, brethren, a righteousness that is not of the law. It's possible to have the righteousness of God, and it's possible to get it in a way other than by law keeping. I mean, these are the glories of the Gospel. Hell! We've been delivered from hell! We deserved it, ever, forever, and forever, and for all the ages, and onward, and onward, and onward. We deserved it, and we never have to taste it. Ever. Totally. Brethren, if, if we didn't have Hebrews chapter 1, we could imagine, Oh, certainly, the writer must have dealt with all those things, or some of those things. But that's not what happens in chapter 1 at all. With the exception of four words in the entire chapter, our salvation is not the topic of emphasis. I mean, just look at it. I want you to notice just how much our salvation is not talked about. Which is not what, it's not what I would expect. I don't think it's what we would expect at all. Let's read Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So far, no mention of our salvation whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world." No mention of salvation. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Again, no mention. After making purification for sins, now there it is, three words. Purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But aside from those three words, we only really get one more word that even a, even hints at salvation. Those three words, and that's it, other than the last word in the chapter. And that's only given to us in an offhanded way. But let's continue to read. There in verse 3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. There's no mention of salvation in that. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. No mention of salvation. And again, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, Let all God's angels worship Him. Of the angels, He says, He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God, has anointed You with the oil of gladness beyond Your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. No salvation here. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. There is no mention of salvation. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Again, he's talking about angels. He only says salvation right there in an offhanded way. It just strikes me right between the eyes that for the writer to come to Hebrews 2 and say, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must not drift from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such great salvation? Listen. For him to say this, when he largely hasn't even been describing our great salvation, Shows us something wonderful, infinitely valuable. Our salvation is inestimably great. Not just because of what was accomplished in that salvation. It's such a great salvation primarily because of who accomplished it. I mean, that's the reality here. Do you all see that? When this writer says, therefore, we must pay much closer attention. We better not drift from it. And how shall we escape? The writer's primary argument for paying attention and not drifting, not neglecting, it doesn't even flow from breathtaking views of our salvation. But almost entirely from breathtaking pictures Of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Listen, I mean, what? As I was looking at that, and I just, that whole argument just flows right in there, and I'm saying, this is incredible. Nobody has a great salvation who does not have a great Christ. That's the reality. What the writer of Hebrews shows us here is that you can do nothing at all except turn your attention to the glories of Christ and barely at all talk about your salvation. Just turn your attention to the beauties of Christ and come to the conclusion this is an absolutely great unspeakable, unparalleled salvation. Don't miss this brethren, this is huge. Yes, it is important that we know what Christ has done for us, and to be deeply thankful for it. But the writer of Hebrews, he shows us that what we have heard in the gospel is of unparalleled glory, because Christ is of unparalleled glory. Brethren, what you can tell, what the writer of Hebrews wants us to feel, is he wants us to look at Christ and say, wow, just just seeing Him, if He has anything to do with our salvation, if this one, then, it's got to be great. I mean, you get the feeling He wants us to feel that if such a person as this even glanced at us, let alone salvation, let alone was willing to lay down His own life for us, but if He only glanced at us, if He only gave us the time of day, if He only acknowledged us, if He only looked our way, it would be such a mercy, it would be such a blessing, it would be so great. Brethren, Such a great thing that to despise even that, even a little recognition of this One, would be a crime of great enormity. But to neglect when this One Himself laid aside His glory and came down, He who was rich became poor. And I know, brethren, I know, this this is a Very inadequate illustration. But I I don't doubt that many of you, children out here, and probably your parents listening as well or reading, you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's books. Any of you familiar with those, your children? You know, there's one there, the, my favorite of the whole thing. We have it on CD, so when we travel, we listen to these. So we've heard them many times. But my favorite is the horse and his boy. And there is a place in there that is especially, I think, just a wonderful picture. You may remember, there are these two talking horses. Uh, Bree and wind and they're with this young lady and suddenly suddenly the lion Aslan appears and everybody's terrified because he hasn't really told them who he is or what he's there for they're absolutely terrified and when the female talking horse when when she looks at him She's, she's shaking, it's Lewis says. And she walks over to him and says, Please, you're so beautiful. You may eat me if you like. I'd sooner be eaten by you than fed by anyone else. Brethren, I get the distinct feeling what the writer of Hebrews wants you to do is look at Christ. And be so overwhelmed to lose yourself in this Christ. In His beauty. Where you come to say, I'd sooner lose my life for you. Than to gain it for anything else. I would sooner suffer anything than to lose you. I would sooner be just the most meager servant in your house than to be king of any country here. That's the feeling I get when I read this chapter 1 and I come to chapter 2 and I find him saying, this salvation is so great, how can we possibly escape? If they didn't escape under that old... Word given by angels, how in the world will we escape such a great salvation? He wants us to feel. It's Christ, brethren, it's Christ that makes it so beautiful, so worthy, so glorious. Brethren, His greatness, His greatness demands that this salvation be great. And I just, I mean, who, who is even worthy? It's, it's like you look at Hebrews chapter 1 and you're thinking, I'm going to try to preach on this. What can I possibly say? But I, I thought I would just say a few words on each of these first seven. You know, it seems that chapter 1 is divided up into first verses 2 through 3 contain seven statements of Christ's supremacy. And you know the thing is that number is most likely deliberate because right after that from verses 5 through 14 they go on to list seven Old Testament passage passages that distinctly are showing the writer's appealing to concerning the supremacy of Christ over angels and seven you know is often that number that represents perfection or completion it seems what the writer wants us to feel is the perfect the complete supremacy, preeminence of Christ. Well, look at the first. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. <coughs> Excuse me. I felt like right here, You know the very flavor of this this first chapter. Well, to which of the angels has he ever said? That's how he argues. And I thought, here he is comparing Christ over against the prophets. And I began to think, well, what was it he said to the Son that he most definitely never said to any of the prophets? And I thought of this. Matthew 17, 5, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As much as we should listen to the prophets, he never said this about any of the prophets. In fact, if you think with me, who, I mean, who comes to your mind as probably the greatest prophet, the prophet of all prophets, outside of Christ? Old Testament prophet. I mean, who, who, who's the first of the major prophets? I would say Isaiah, right? <clears throat> Think with me of Isaiah. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. I am undone or I am lost. He said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Brother, I can tell you this, as much as Isaiah spoke for God, he certainly didn't speak everything out of his mouth for God, or he would have never said that. But of Christ, the Father says, I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to what the Psalm 45, verse 2. Don't turn there, but listen to it. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever." Can you imagine the lips of Christ? Luke 4.22, they marveled at the gracious words. There's those, grace poured upon His lips. Men looked, men listened, they said, These are gracious words that are coming from his mouth. You remember when the officers were sent by the chief priests, the scribes and the Pharisees? They go out there, go get Christ. The officers go out and they come back. Why haven't you brought him? They said no one ever spoke like this man. Of course no one ever spoke like this man. No one was ever like this man. Brethren, he got done preaching the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astounded astonished at his teaching, brethren, the next time you read the gospels and you if you 've got a red letter edition and Jesus is speaking <clears throat> just listen to his words with a fresh awe. I can remember as a new believer, just him coming up against these folks that wanted to to discredit him before the crowds, and they said, you know they're talking about whether or not they should pay the Pay the tax to Caesar? Does that amaze you anymore? Jesus spoke with such words that I can remember as a new believer. Just This is incredible. How, how could he speak like this? How could he think these thoughts? Well, he's the very mouthpiece of God. And unlike any of the Old Testament prophets, brethren, do you understand? Grace and truth came from his lips all the time, words, His words all the time were smoother than silk and purer than gold. Can you imagine? I mean, you can imagine. I, sometimes you'll watch people as they talk. You know, you get married and you watch your wife. And you just watch her. And You, you know, I do this with my wife. My wife talks to people all the time. Sometimes I just watch her talk. Can you imagine if you were one of the followers of Christ and you just you just watched and you're just imagining every every movement of his lips was just pushing out truth grace kindness I mean he's over there talking to a leper. I mean, what what, what could he be saying? I will be clean. I mean Words of life, words of healing, words of wonder. I mean, you know, they said of Herod one time, and he was eaten of worms and died because it was so blasphemous. But they said of him one time, it's not the voice of a man, it's the voice of God. But I'll tell you this, when you hear Jesus speak, you could say that's the voice of God. It truly was all the time. How about the second thing here? Appointed the heir. Hebrews 1 verse 2. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Now, it's not absolutely certain. But it's possible. As the writer of Hebrews breaks out here and he begins to quote Old Testament passages, you are my son, today have I begotten you. You know where that comes from? Where's that come from? Psalm chapter Psalm what? Psalm 2. Well, listen to Psalm 2, verse 7 and 8. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And you know that's on the writer's mind. But in verse 8, it says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. Well, who does the inheritance go to? The heir. The ends of the earth, your possession. Just imagine this, brethren. Let it take hold of you. Christ is the heir of everything. Daniel 7.13 I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven. See this in your mind. The night visions. The clouds of heaven. Imagine it. Imagine when you see these glorious clouds and thunderheads and the rays of sun shining through. And imagine one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Here is the Son of Man, He is the heir. All this is given to Him, dominion, glory, a kingdom. The Father holds nothing back, all is for Christ. Ephesians 1, we find, that God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church. Brethren, we read that all things work together for good to those who love God, and that's true. But do you ever meditate on the fact that all things are Christ, and all things work together for His glory, and all things work together to serve Him, all things come back? Brethren, Psalm 72, May He have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before Him and His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render Him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. Brethren, even His enemies serve Him and His cause. And His kingdom, even if it's by licking the dust. They all serve Him. His enemies, as well as His friends. Everything is for Him. Everything serves Him. Lost or saved, we are His. Brethren, Psalm 2, He says, Ask of Me. The Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance. The ends of the earth your possession. It says that he shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's all his. It's all his inheritance. I mean, do you see this? Christ is absolutely relevant to everything. We all have a course that's taking us Right to his judgment seat. Everything is for him. All of us are for him. Every man, woman, and child you see, these people here, probably from from northeast India, all of them, they're all his. We are his. All of us. Kiss the sun. This psalm says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. I mean, you see this. It's wonderful. It's fearful. Kiss the Son. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. He's heir of all things. How about this? Third from Hebrews 1. Through whom also... He created the world. Well, we have these interesting pronouns. Through whom He created the world. So who created the world? Who is the He that created the world? Is it the Father or the Son? What was it? It's the Father. It's the Father. If you look at the flow here, this is God creating. It's the Father creating the world. Who's the whom? Through whom? That's Christ. The Father created the worlds through the Son. And, And the world, we're talking about the whole realm of time and space, this age, all the worlds, the entire universe. This statement, it affirms God created the universe and did it through the agency of His Son. Can anybody explain that? How does God create, but He does it through His Son? How does He create, but He does it through Him? What does that mean? I mean, I don't know. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews, obviously, these these statements that fill us with such wonder, they stretch us to the limits. Now, I know. Uh, look, all I can do in this is the same thing you can do. We're grasping. All the time we're grasping. I mean, it was said this morning. We just, we don't know. We can't comprehend. There is a greatness here. Where, who said that? Who said that this morning? Just, we. I don't even remember what it was said or what it was about, but somebody was was saying something about these things. They just they escape our ability to grasp. Maybe it was when we were praying this morning. How do, how, does, how do we imagine the Father creating and doing it through the agency of His Son in a way that the Father does it, but He does it through the Son? And I don't know, all I can do is let Scripture speak. And I, I know... Men have wrestled back and forth about whether they're in Proverbs chapter eight, but when I come to the scriptures and I, I imagine the Emmaus Road and Christ is moving down through all the Old Testament scriptures, I don't I mean I don't think it's a stretch to my although many, much of this stretches my imagination. I don't think it would be a stretch to my imagination if it's on the Emmaus Road Jesus said and in Proverbs chapter eight that's me. I am the wisdom. And that's the way he set forth in Scripture. Proverbs 8, listen to this. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work. The first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there was no depths, I was brought forth. He was begotten. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth, eternally begotten. Therefore He had made the earth with its fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When He established the heavens, I was there. When He drew a circle on the face of the deep, when He made firm the skies above, when He established the fountains of the deep, when He assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress His command, when He marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside Him." Who? Well, wisdom, like a master workman. Well, it says, when He assigned the sea its limit, And yet this one at his side is the master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. When was he brought forth? Always. Rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of men. I think the writer of Hebrews just tries to stretch our thinking Trying to stretch the limits of our very minds, he wants us to see, brethren, he wants us you know you know what this is all about? I mean, why does he have to come in here and try to convince these people so much that Jesus Christ is superior to angels? Well, isn't it because people that lived at that time, I mean, they had this idea about this unassuming Jew? He was just a carpenter. He hung around with fishermen from Galilee. He walked these dusty roads with this little motley crew of men. They weren't famous. They weren't well known. They weren't brought up in palaces. They weren't exceptionally wealthy, rich. They weren't recognized by the spiritual leader. And then all things, he dies like a common criminal on a cross. And the writer is saying, oh, your five senses may not pick it up. But this unassuming Jew over here, he's the one who created the world. He's the one who was the workman at the Father's right hand. Through him, all these worlds came into being. This one is not just your average Jew out of Palestine or your average criminal. We're dealing with somebody altogether different. And you know, it's true. When he walked down those streets of Palestine, he walked up through Samaria and around through Galilee and John and Judea. Wherever he went, the archangels' trumpets didn't blow, and all this fanfare, and all this applause. But nevertheless, they had one of such greatness in their midst. I mean brethren, do you realize, just angels, when men saw them, they fell down. And they had one in their midst, who so surpassed angels. The very creator of the world. No, He didn't come in that blinding glory, or come riding in on a white charger. But this is the One who created the world. Brethren, the writer of Hebrews wants you to look at this and say, our salvation must be really great. How about this? The radiance of God's glory. Hebrews 1.3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. I mean, what do you think about when when you think of radiance? I think of brilliant, bright, shining light. Now, you get a lot of cloudy days here. We don't get many of those in Texas. But you know what it's like when the whole sky is just gloomy overcast? Like it was this morning, kind of foggy, and. Well, it's light outside. There's light. But it's all diffused by the clouds. That's not what I think of when I think of radiance. I envision have you ever seen? I, I mean, in Texas, one thing we do have is we get these magnificent thunderheads. And they lift up and rise up many times in late afternoon. And so the sun is down over. And these beams just blaze through. I mean you can see them streaking out. I get more of a picture in my mind like that. I envision beams of light streaming forth through these thunderheads. Like 10,000 lightning bolts shining forth from a throne. And there's one on that throne. One sitting upon it. Emanating brightness from himself. Brethren... I know God is everywhere, but God is not everything. And there are things and places that we find in Scripture where there is darkness. And I get this picture of beams of light, His own light, shining from Himself into that which is not Himself. His light shining into the darkness, great beams of glory that are just piercing and shimmering, dazzling. If you trace that light back to it's source, it's, it's all ablaze. I mean, if you could go up, you see these beams coming out, if you could immediately transport yourself into it and look, suddenly you can't see. And there's no darkness there. There's no darkness in Him, John tells us. None at all. Just this blazing. And it is unapproachable, it is not the kind of light that men, especially men in their darkness, men in sin, they shy away from it, they seek to hide from it. It is so blinding, it is so glorious, unapproachable. A brightness that so transcends all we know, a brightness that is so intense. just blinding in its intensity. A brightness that is, this is a light that is literally God Himself. Pure God. Does the Scripture not say God is light? We're talking an eminence that is pure God. and Brethren, the thing about this is Jesus radiates this very glory. And when I come to Scripture, I find In John 17, my brothers and sisters, what is eternal life as described in John 17? What is it? To know who? To know the true God? To know His Son? To know the One He has sent? To know Jesus Christ? Brethren, God is light. The very glory of God emanates and shines from the very face of Jesus Christ. In the Father, you have light. In the Son, you have the radiance of that light. Eternal life is to know them. It is to come to behold. Do you understand what eternity is? God is going to pull you deeper and deeper and deeper into that light. That's what eternal life is. Being pulled into it further and further, deeper and deeper into those blinding regions. You have to know God. Brethren, God has something for us in this salvation. Do do you realize why Paul, when he looks at all this, he says, unsearchable riches of Christ. We're talking something we can't fathom being pulled closer and closer to, to see more and more and comprehend and to be drawn into this light where we're able to perceive more with bodies unlike what we have now. Comprehension. Brethren, Glorious, glorious. Our salvation is exceedingly great. We're going to be pulled in to greater and greater manifestations of this One who is so great. I mean, can you imagine, brethren, for you that have been saved, it is real. It is coming. There is going to come that moment when for the first time, You're going to behold his face. And that'll be it. Every longing, every desire, it will be quenched. I mean, you will, that'll be it. There's no greener grass on the other side, folks. That's it. You're at the end, you've come to your heart's desire and you will be swept into that light, coming to know it and behold it more and more. Brethren, our salvation is exceedingly great, because Jesus Christ is exceedingly bright. There is more. Exact imprint of God's nature, I mean, the Son is the exact representation of God's being. Not the same person. That doesn't mean God the Son is God the Father. It means what you see when you see the Son is what the Father is like. Jesus Christ is God's self-revelation. And again, the writer of Hebrews, I'm certain, wants these people to wake up. They want, they, he wants them to come and look inside the veil. Their idea, their human ideas about Christ. What He looked like, what He appeared as. When He had laid aside that glory and walked through this life as a man. Come and look behind this veil. See this carpenter from Nazareth. See that this One that walked among you, He was the very embodiment of God Himself. That's the idea. Brethren, when we look over there and we see Christ, He was literally wailing over the city of Jerusalem, having rejected Him by and large. When you see Christ sighing, when you see Him weeping, when you see His heart, when you see His love, when you see Him helping, brethren, we see the Father. This is the Father. He wants us to behold the Son in order to behold Him. How about this? He upholds the universe. What is that, number five? Number 6, maybe? Number 7? I forget, where are we at? But anyways, He upholds the universe. Hebrews 1.3, And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Well, that's, that's what it is. Somebody mentioned that today. All things in this universe. Think about it. It's all upheld. I mean this, the walls here, they're upheld by His word. We can't run away from Him, we can't get away. Again, I say this again, Christ is absolutely relevant. There is nothing that is irrelevant to Christ. He is in the midst of everything, He is upholding everything. He upholds your heartbeat, He upholds these walls, and the sheet rock, and, and the light that comes forth here, and these fans on the ceiling, and the ground underneath us, our very bodies, our minds. He, he is upholding everything, everything, every speck of dust. I mean, you have such beautiful lawns here, but every blade of that grass, I've seen so many rabbits, all of these rabbits, upheld by Him. We saw a blue jay the other day attack this little bird. Just Jesus is upholding all this by the Word. I mean, you understand, by the Word, if He stopped upholding it by the Word, if He forgot about it, if He turned His attention away, it just wouldn't exist. It is all upheld. It, he is close, He is not the God of the deists that is far away, wound it up, now it's all running, and he stepped out and it just kind of goes on without his help. He is close, he is intimately involved in the midst of absolutely everything. It makes Christ absolutely relevant to everything. The writer is convinced this reality as well makes our salvation great. And I just last here, after making purification for sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I'll tell you, Jesus could come as a prophet. And He could speak. And He did. God spoke through Him. And He came speaking the words of God, the truth of God, the Gospel of God. And He could come as it was foretold in the very lineage. Of David. This was the son of David. This is royalty. This is the prince, the king. And he could come in kingly majesty. He could speak with prophetic utterance. But I can tell you this: he could never sat down till he finished the work of the priest. There was no. You know, it is very interesting when you when you go through Hebrews, you find that. The priests in the temple were doing what every day? They were standing. They never sat. There was never a chair in the temple. Jesus Christ sits down. He sat down on a throne. He sat down with His Father. What did He do? He made purification for sins. Not just for sin generically, sins. Purification, He made it. You know you hear about definite atonement? This is definite purification. He made purification. We know it was done. We know it was complete. We know it was finished. Because He sat down for sins. There are specific sins of specific people that He actually purified. And He sat down on the throne. A king, a great high priest. He sat down. Now the government's upon his shoulder. Rules with a rod of iron. Inherited. He's the heir, the creator. Looks out over all he's created. It's all his. The Father is given to it. He's made head of all things. The writer of Hebrews just basically says, Behold, this is a great salvation. What a savior! Amen.